people ask me when they get on calls with me and, and so often on my Instagram page, how do I learn to say no? You don't learn to say no. You learn how to stop saying yes. You have a yes problem, not a no problem. Patrice Washington, and this is the Redefining Wealth Podcast, where authenticity leads to alignment and abundance. Join us each week as we peel back the layers on what wealth truly means and dive into conversations that inspire, connect, and empower you to live your richest life. Get ready to challenge the status quo. It's time to redefine wealth for yourself. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Redefining Wealth. This is the space that you come to each and every week to learn more about what it means to chase purpose, not money. That's because we're a community that understands that wealth is so much more than just money and material possessions. The true 12th century definition of wealth is the condition of well-being. And you need to be well in your relationships if you are going to be wealthy. That is why This month, it is all about not people pleasing anymore. And I am kicking off this theme of stop people pleasing with the people displeaser himself, the one and only Nick Pollard. You may already follow him on Instagram. He's a world-renowned coach and speaker specializing in people pleasing, codependency, and addiction. He has over 50 million views on his social media channels. That includes TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and he's become a thought leader in personal growth and change. He ranks in the top 10% of coaches worldwide. And I brought him here to help us as purpose chasers stop people pleasing. This month in the Institute for Redefining Wealth, oh my gosh, I am so excited about one of the things that I'm preparing for our community, which is an opportunity to do some role-playing and using scripts to prepare for those uncomfortable conversations. We're still trying to get the date down. So you're hearing this on February 1st. You are in luck. You will not miss it as long as you come on into the Institute. Right now, we still have our founding member special through February 4th. February 4th is the last time that you'll be able to get into the Institute for the first month at just 2024, or you can sign up for the year and save $100, essentially two months free in the Institute for Redefining Wealth. And there's so many other goodies. So make sure you go to redefiningwealth.institute to get in now. That's redefiningwealth.institute. The next voice you hear after the affirmation of the week will be my conversation with the one and only Nick Pollard. This week's affirmation is, I give myself permission to establish my personal bill of rights. I proudly assert my right to create and communicate the boundaries and standards that honor my authentic self. I grant myself the right to prioritize my needs, wants, and desires without guilt, recognizing that my well-being is paramount for me to execute the vision on my heart. I affirm my right to set healthy boundaries in all areas of my life, creating relationships, partnerships, and environments that uplift and respect me. I declare my right to pursue my passions and dreams, unapologetically embracing the journey of self-discovery and growth in the process. 
With each decision and every conversation, I reinforce my personal bill of rights, empowering myself to live a life aligned with my values, my goals, and the deepest desires of my heart. Declare with me today, I give myself permission to establish my personal bill of rights. Welcome to the Redefining Wealth podcast, Nick Pollard. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. You are like so chill. You give me just <laughs> just California vibes. You know, I'm I'm actually from LA. You give me those real cool California vibes, but I've been so looking forward to having you on the podcast. I don't quite remember how I stumbled upon you on Instagram. I don't know if someone just sent me uh, one of your clips of you walking on the beach, talking about boundaries or telling people <laughs> what it is and what it isn't. But I have been stuck ever since sharing your reels and all that, sharing them with my community. And it's so, so, so good to see you and to have you on the podcast. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's um, been watching some of your stuff too and listen to a few of your episodes and it's pretty cool to be here. So I appreciate the invite. Ah, thank you so much. I, I just want to start with you're known as the people displeaser. When did you first discover that you were actually a people pleaser? I think the there's kind of a longer answer to that, but the the shorter is I had checked into rehab in 2018, and I was I was really sick, just really really sick with alcoholism and couldn't pull my life straight. I couldn't, and for the longest time I tried to get sober and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't. And then as I kind of sobered up over the, over that timeline, you know, I bounced off the sobriety walls as most people do through that. I started to realize that I just had never really given myself what I needed. And then once I had that epiphany, it was like, well, what does that mean? And yeah, <laughs> I started I'm like, to look okay, what does that like, mean? Oh yeah. Oh, that's not good. That means that I was effectively in this position that I, I could never, give myself what I wanted. I could never be the the man I wanted to be. I was constantly trying to live up to other people's expectations. And once I figured out that I wasn't living my life, it was like, well, what do I call that? I'm like, I'm, I'm certainly very pleasing. And I'm like, oh, and then my therapist actually said it's people pleasing. It's like, oh, okay, great. So now I knew. And then I went about the task of like figuring out how to fix that. So this whole month on the Redefining Wealth podcast, we break everything down by the pillars of wealth. And the second pillar is called the people pillar. And our theme for this month is stop people pleasing. So I am oh, so excited. You got the right guy. <laughs> I, I know. I know. You actually inspired the theme for this month. It's all about not people pleasing. And this really came up because when I was talking to a few ladies who had come into my mastermind program, Mastery Momentum, I said, what's the number one reason you feel like you haven't been really living your life's purpose? These were the three answers I got from three different women. I'm afraid of what people will think. If I do what I really want to do, the second, I don't want to disappoint the people who love me the most because what I desire to do doesn't align with what they think I should do. And the third person said, well, what will people say? Just what? And every answer was rooted in something external, someone external and completely denying, dismissing and diminishing what they knew in their souls they wanted to do and what they should do in favor of, well, this is what other people think. And that's heartbreaking. Right. And it's the number one crippling thing for people that I work with is 
and Patrice, I, I work with people that are, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the amount of, the amount of success that I have in my client roster is, is mind blowing. I mean, it's my contact list is probably worth north of a couple of billion dollars. And those are the same people that have the same problem as somebody who's just trying to get to 100K or 50K. The problem is the same across all genre. At every financial level, people are terrified of what other people think. And I think it comes mostly from social media. I think it comes from an environment where activism is being offended rather than doing something. I think there's kind of all of these narratives around like, I'm an activist. And like, really? What did you actively do? I posted. I made a post. Duh. Right. That was the I thing. I posted. I did a thing. <laughs> right. I, I reposted. Oh, when you're living in an environment like that, what happens is, is, is you start being afraid of everyone because we've created this kind of narrative that if I'm, if I'm even slightly wrong, then I could be canceled. I could be hated. I could be called any number of you know things and it's not no longer is ignorance acceptable and that's impossible to navigate life is impossible to navigate where ignorance is unacceptable break that down further though because we hear that ignorance is bliss right <laughs> well yeah well they they and i think when people say ignorance is bliss they're they're saying it kind of tongue in cheek of course right where it's like if you don't know a problem exists then you don't have to deal with it, not to get into the political side of this, but during COVID when they were like, well, the, if we test less, we'll have less COVID. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's kind of how that goes. But if you don't look for it, we're not going to find it. But that's also how life is. And I think where people pleasing is concerned with one of the problems my page actually has is that I expose this blind spot in people. And the problem with learning is that you start out unconsciously incompetent. You have no idea what you don't know, right? And then somebody like me comes along and pokes you in the forehead and goes, now you know. And now you're consciously incompetent. You're going, well, thanks, Nick. I really appreciate that. How do I fix it? <laughs> well, you know what? We call that here the awakening. So awakening is to arise from slumber. So a lot of times we're on autopilot. We're just going about doing our thing. We don't know what we don't know. And then you have this awakening where all of a sudden someone gives language or gives description to something that you've been experiencing. And now you can't say you don't know. The problem is, you may know, but not necessarily have the guts to own it yet or to do something about it. Right. And when you look at how that progression goes, so you go from that, I don't know, to what, to what you call an awakening. And then you have to go, you have to take an action step, right? And that action step is so often practice. Becoming consciously competent is the idea of like, I'm practicing, I'm learning, I'm growing. And it can take 10,000 hours to, to acquire a skill is what they say, or you know, it could take 20 hours. It doesn't really matter. But the, the point is, is mastery takes time. So you, you're kind of doing that till you move into an unconscious competence or kind of the master's level of, of how to do things, right? And you work with wealth. So you work with financials quite a lot. If you want to talk about something just vicious in that world, it's people-pleasing. The ability to overgive and, and people-please is just brutal. And it creates like these massive gaps in time between what you want, what you should, like where you want to go. And we see it a lot in, in religious institutions. We see it a lot with, you know, families starting businesses together. We see like, you know, mainly what you're doing when you start a business with your brother-in-law is you're loaning him $10,000 and he's going <laughs> to piss it away. So, I mean, you and I both know, like, 
one of my boundaries is I don't lend money to family. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Like I don't lend money to my family or my friends. I don't go to business with my friends either. Like I'll give money to my family. Yes. But I don't lend money to my family. I will give my family money. And if they want to give me equity in a company in return, fine. But there's never going to be any equity. It's going to be fine. Right. Like I <laughs> <laughs> and being honest with yourself, that radical honesty is what's so important. And you're right. This is where the pillars of wealth really were birthed from because I was working with people just in even basic personal finance management. And they would say, I have a money problem. But then the more I talked to them and listened to them and coached them and walked them through things, I'm like, it sounds like you have a people problem. This is not a this is not a budgeting problem. This is a boundary problem, <laughs> right? And you're making it about, well, which budget should I use? What does it matter if you're never going to say no? Right. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Like, I have a money problem. No, 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 no. No, you really don't. You you have a allowing people to use you problem. Yeah. Yeah. People ask me when they get on calls with me and, and so often on my Instagram page, how do I learn to say no? You don't learn to say no. You learn how to stop saying yes. You have a yes problem, not a no problem. Ooh, break this down, Nick. Well, think about what you do when you say yes. When your default program, so you talked about default living, how people are just kind of going through the motions and they're on autopilot. Your default modality of living is what you were taught from birth to like five years old. And if you were taught that saying no was mean or disrespectful or unfair, then you're going to live that way regardless of whether it serves you or not. And the more you do that, so when people pleasers do this on a long enough timeline, what will happen is yes becomes meaningless, Ooh. like completely meaningless. So because they're overcommitted, they've spent all their money, they can't do the things they want to do. So they say yes, 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 yes. And then they end up canceling plans all the time. Or they, they end up not showing up or not being present or being on their phone trying to figure out the next thing. And none of that is a great way to live happily. So when you learn to say no, you're also learning to not say yes. And you start to see this weird thing happens. Number one, you'll learn that like nobody really cares when you say yes or no. So often like a yes is come to be expected. So people get a little surprised and sometimes shocked in the beginning when you start to say no. But then once you do it for like a week or two and people get used to you saying no more often and and now they know they have to kind of qualify their their needs. Like, why am I asking you for this? The asks start going away, number one. Number two, your yes becomes exceedingly more valuable. And you can tell that by the effort people are willing to put in to get the yes. Oh, the effort they're willing to put in to get the yes. Yeah, because if you become accustomed to hearing no from me, that means you're going to come to me with qualifiers. Why should I give you the money? Why should I help you move? Right. At some point, there needs to be an exchange, an equitable position. Like I'm willing to give to you, but are you going to be able to like say yes when I call you and need to have a beer with my buddy? So we get to these places where over time, like yes, yes, yes means your yes means nothing. When you say no, then your yes becomes exceedingly more powerful. People respect it and they want it more because it's not given to everything. Yeah, this is so good. I'm even experiencing this in business. Most recently, someone just reached out about wanting me to speak somewhere. And it's a, an event that I've spoken at before. And to create the relationship, I was willing to go a little under what my normal speaking fee is. And it was wonderful, wonderful experience. I did a, a great job, all the things. And then they invited me back for the second year. And somehow the person who reached out, Nick, offered me less to speak for longer. 
And I'm like, clearly there's been a misunderstanding. <laughs> like, you don't know what happened here. So let me, you know, my team said, okay, well, we'll just bring them up to speed. And so we sent them the agreement with what the actual numbers should be and why and all of those things. They sent it back, scratched out the time frame that they were trying to extend, right? So instead of me speaking for 45 to 60 minutes, they wanted me to speak for like two hours. They scratched it out, scratched out my rate, lowered the rate, and then signed it and said, we'll see you at such and such, such and such. So we had to reply with, that doesn't feel like you're honoring what I bring to the table and all those things. So perhaps this year's just not a great fit. And the woman replied with the, she's like, you are asking me who says no to more things than I say yes. And I gave you my yes and you did not value it. And because I said, no, it's okay. I'm good. It's just not a good fit. They replied with a, you you should be, I didn't even read the whole thing. I opened it and closed my phone and went on about my day. I still haven't (laughs) finished reading it. But it's wild how people will expect you to say yes, personally or professionally, with no hesitation. It's like, did you, you didn't even ask with the intention of a possibility of a no. You just assumed there would be a yes because of the name you're attached to. I have my own standards though. So that's a no. Right. So is it on us to exercise the standard or is it on us to try to force other people to see our value? So I teach value-based boundaries rather than just, I think boundaries are, are misconstrued in so many ways as to I set a boundary with my mom, but I don't know what that even means. Like, how did you set a boundary? They said, like, I set a boundary on my mom. What? Did you put her in a fence? Is she in a cage somewhere? What does that mean? Because when somebody violates your boundaries, you have a you problem, not a them problem. So one of the things I would say in the situation you just expressed is like, I might have even gone further than you, which was to respond with, I'm sorry, my speaking fees no longer align with this. I've sent you an updated agreement and it is, and we're not negotiating. Hindsight, of course, being 2020, but I would have been that bold with it because here is what my speaking fee is per hour. Well, that was a part of what we sent back. That's a part of what we right. said when we sent it back <laughs> and she still sent it crossed out like she didn't. It was weird. I've never experienced such a thing. I mean, I, I don't know what organization this is, but, uh, you know, it sounds like you don't line up with them anymore. But when when you go with what is a boundary, like I have a bill of rights that I keep in my pocket. Tell us about the bill of rights. Is this just a list of your personal standards? It's a list of what I'm willing to accept and what I'm not willing to accept, which is my boundaries. That is the definition of what a boundary is, what you will tolerate, what you will not tolerate. Okay. What types of things are on the list? So one of the things is I'm allowed to be unhappy. I'm allowed to get angry. I'm allowed to feel my feelings. I'm allowed to say no. I'm allowed to say yes. I'm allowed to spend money on myself. That was a big one for me when I was really deep in the people-pleasing world is like, I spent six weeks trying to buy a 75-inch television, not because I didn't have the money. I had the money. I had 10 times the money, but I couldn't spend the money on myself. So now it's in my boundaries. I'm allowed to feel my feelings. I'm allowed, you know, in boundaries, there's all kinds of of variety. But I mean, if you look at some of the core concepts, you have your, your health boundaries or your personal boundaries, you have your emotional boundaries, you have your wealth boundaries in terms of like your finances. You could also call those material boundaries, like what you'll do with your stuff. You have your sexual boundaries, like all of those. So I have I have rights that are listed underneath all of those categories that I believe in myself and I, I allow myself to have, right? They don't violate anybody else's boundaries. They're about me. Like I'm allowed to say no to sex. A lot of men don't realize they're allowed to do that. Mm. 
That is so good. And you carry it around. How long have you had this practice? That I started about three years ago. And do you add to it regularly? I change it about once a year because I laminate it and put it in my wallet. This is so good. It's around me all the time. Like if I get unhappy, I I look at my list because there's kind of key points in all of them, right? So like I'm allowed to say no. That runs the gamut across everything. Period. Do you need explanation when you give your no? No. What do you do when people prod for an explanation? I think it's okay to explain. I will never convince, but I'm happy to explain. Like if I have to sell you on my no, then the answer is hard no. Why are you saying no? Because I'm an adult and I don't answer why questions would be my answer to that. (laughs) Gosh. Like I'm brutal. But again, you're talking to a guy that used to be an addict. Like I was addicted to cocaine and alcohol and my life was miserable and I never said no to anything. And I was constantly spending all my money on other people. And I, and like, I grew up in an environment that, that fostered that behavior and all these things kind of came together and culminated in this one issue. And I was like, I got to learn to say no, because I'm dying here. Right? So now my no is sacred to me. It's divine to me. It's as powerful as my yes, but my yes is exponentially more meaningful. So if you think about it in terms of like, what, it, what do you learn when you start to say no? Well, number one, you learn that your yes isn't nearly as powerful as you think. Number two, you learn that saying no isn't the end of the world and people are going to get their feelings hurt. That's okay. But number three, and the most important lesson in no is a yes is a lot harder to come back from. So if I say, yes, Patrice, happy to come on your podcast. And then three hours from now, you called me and you're like, hey, are you ready? And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Sorry. It doesn't line up with who I want to be. What do you think of me at that point? That you're chicken. Right. I'm chicken. (laughs) I'm a liar. I'm not a man of my word, right? Yeah. These are all the things that you might think about me. Now, if I had said no, and then you called me three hours before and you're like, hey, my last guest canceled, would you mind? Like, it'd it'd mean a lot to me. And I was like, you know what? I'll do that. What am I then? A hero. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So if you say no, I can't make it to lunch with you today. And then five minutes later, you call your, your buddy and you're like, hey, you know what? I do. I, let's do it. Let's go. Wasn't in the mood for Chili's, but let's go anyway. That person's going to be elated. But if you say yes and then call later and say no, then they're going to be sad, disappointed, let down. Mm-hmm. Right? So saying no actually buys you more goodwill than it doesn't. And that's what people don't know. Yeah. I've been learning even in business, instead of over promising things to just hold some things back and then over delight. Like if you come into an experience with me, I I don't feel compelled to list a zillion things. It's like, this is the core of what we're going to do together. And then everything else that I add, the surprises, you know, the surprise guests, the pop-ups, the gifts, the whatever is a delight. Earlier, years ago, when I first started, I felt the pressure of, oh, I need to pretend that I can manifest all of these things for these people. And now I'm burnt out doing what I set out to do, which is work that I love. And I don't want to turn what I love to do into something that's more difficult than it needs to be. So instead of over-promising, we over-delight in the, on the back end. I couldn't agree with that idea more. I think um, I see that a lot in salespeople where they have a tendency to over-promise um, to get the deal done. Whereas, you know, they know what they're doing. I, I, I was in sales for 30 years and I've, you know, ostensibly I'm still in sales. I mean, <laughs> what it is. but I just do it on a much broader scale, I suppose. But 
No, I, I love that. And it, but also, you know, you need to be able to say no to what you know you can't do too, at the risk of losing the client, because you will lose the client anyway, one way or the other. If you say yes to something, you're you're going to burn the relationship. You're going to burn yourself out. You're going to end up screwed up. Like as I go, you know, as my coaching career has kind of progressed over the last two years, I'm starting to recognize that one-to-one coaching is burning me out. I, I don't want to do it anymore. On a very like small scale, one-to-one coaching engagements isn't how I want to do it anymore. Well, that means that when people get on my phone, I have to be honest, like, look, I'm cutting a lot out of this program because me answering your text messages at two in the morning has to stop, right? Me constantly checking up on you has to stop. Yeah. And and no amount of money becomes worth it, you know, after a certain point. Right. So now I'm I'm moving toward a model where like I communicate with my clients once a week. That's it. Good for you. And here's the day I do that. Pick a time slot. <laughs> but we're not like this is where we fit in. Yeah. And that's a big change for me. Yeah. Well, even as the people displeaser, I love that what you're illustrating is because it's a journey. So while some boundaries make sense in one season and what even feels good and feels safe in one season and feels like the thing to do, you have the right to change your mind. Right. I would say that's a part of my personal bill of rights. I have the right to change my mind. It's a really big one. That's how we used to do it. Okay. And so, but now we're not. <laughs> right. And it's made, it's made my sale much harder to get, like changing my mind on these, on these trajectories. But so what? Yeah. Cause you find the new path anyway. It's harder by 1%, but easier on my brain by like 500%. And there you have it. Right. Like if you want to text message me, I can add that in, but it's going to be expensive. <laughs> yeah. Period. And someone will do it. Somebody's going to do that. Now, I happen to be one of those people that are motivated to work out on my own, but I personally don't get the best fit pillar results I can when I don't use a professional trainer because everything that's permissible is not necessarily beneficial. But having a full life can make it so hard to get on the same schedule as a personal trainer. But when I discovered Future in January 2023, the game changed. It has helped me stay committed to my fit pillar goals on the go. It's a personal training app made to fit your life. You get a dedicated coach, personalized training plans and access to unlimited workouts. And trust me, you will enjoy them. I would love for you to check out Future today if you know that you can do okay with your Fit Pillar by yourself, but you want that additional support and you really want to get serious about your Fit Pillar. Go to patricewashington.com slash future and get 50% off your first month today. That's 50% off your first month when you use my link patricewashington.com slash future. There was a line where you said on Instagram once, the same trauma responses that saved me when I was a kid are the same ones that can now cripple me as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I've been saying something similar. One thing that saved me in one season of my life ended up feeling like it was crushing and killing me in the next. And I would love to just know from you, as it pertains to boundaries in particular, were there certain things that you just, I mean, obviously you just didn't know how to say no to, but you felt like they protected you or were good for you in that season. And how did you recognize when it was time to shift? 
So I think during the season of my life that they were a part of it, I didn't. But in hindsight, I think I can see them better. And I think it does take, I say all the time, Patrice, never hire a coach that doesn't have coaches, never hire a coach that doesn't have a therapist. Like somebody needs to be exposing my blind spots while I'm exposing yours. But to answer your question, like if I look back at my fear of failure, it kept me pretty safe for a while. And it, and it served a very good purpose, frankly. I'm actually kind of grateful to it that I had had it because I might have taken risk that could have endangered where I am today. If you can learn to see your fears, not as like, I have to get over this, but as I have to love this into a different type of existence, then you become more aware of who you want to be rather than who you were. Right. So rather than me obsessing, like I do fine financially, but I worry about money all the time. I don't know why. I honest to God cannot tell you why at this point that I go through this like rigmarole every month, but I do. Mm-hmm. And it drives everyone around me crazy. <laughs> so I now love that fear and say, okay, buddy, I see you. Like, what do we need today? Yeah. Name the noise. And oftentimes when I'm living, when I'm in fear, that means I'm not paying attention to something like the roadmap I'm using is wrong. <laughs> and I go, okay, what is the, what, what are we bumping up against every month? What is the roadmap that we're, that we're up against? And so often Patrice in that, in that modality or in that moment is like gratitude. And I don't mean it like I need to write a gratitude list, right? I need to be grateful to myself for all the hard work I've done, right? And people are like, how do I write a, you know, how do I practice gratitude? No, you don't. Nobody practices gratitude. Sorry, you don't. <laughs> you just don't. Um, because if you were doing that, all you'd be doing is that. Gratitude shows up when you need it. It's a very powerful tool. It's like an arrow in the quiver. And for me, I draw that arrow when I'm in fear and I go, okay, what do I need to, what do I need to be grateful for to you, Nick? Like, what am I not paying attention to that you've done? When that comes up for me now, like this is my big blind spot right now. When it comes up for me now, I say, you created this out of nothing. Yeah. Four years ago, I was living in my mom's basement with a dollar in my bank account. That was four years ago. Yeah, I was shocked when you just said that the rehab journey was in 2018. I was shocked because by the time I found you, I think you had maybe like 100,000 followers on Instagram and maybe in the short time, maybe less than a year, you're almost 400,000 now. Yeah. So, so much has happened. And I have 200,000 on TikTok, 220 on TikTok, right? If you really look back on my life, I bankrupted a business in 2018. I was making $3,000 a month. I was driving for Uber. I was living with my mom. I'd been to rehab. When I went to rehab, I was so broke, Patrice, that she had to buy me, and this is back when I was smoking, she had to buy me a carton of cigarettes every five or so days because I was stuck in a rehab center. All there is to do is smoke and cry. So I'm in rehab. She's bringing me like cigarettes and Sour Patch Kids. Every five days for 30 days. My mom's an absolute angel, by the way. Mom, if you're listening to this, I love you. But that to here only took four years. And that's, I think that's what people don't get is like four years sounds like a lot of time. It's really not. It's really not. And within those four years, we were in a pandemic. So, I mean, 18 of those months are just like a blur. Oh, yeah. I forget about that, that I also lost a year. Right. Yeah. Like a big piece of that is such a blur to most of us anyway. I just moved back to Atlanta in 2019. And so those four and a half years, it just feels like 
I blinked. My daughter was in junior high and now we're uh, doing early admission to college. So that absolutely just flew by. Wow. When you talked about the fear, what it made me think of too, is that every time I feel that pressure or start to fear those things, I see it as an invitation to take inventory. I ask myself a lot of questions, but one of those questions too is like, where am I not being present to what's really going on for me, right? And one of those is where am I not being grateful or where am I not really thinking about what this really is? It's like based on where I was raised, how I was raised, the family I was born into and any list of things for myself going through a divorce recently and all of the the things associated with such a an event, right? I'm like, you're still here. You won. <laughs> you're still here. You're right. not bitter. You're not bitter. You're not broken. Right. You're still here. And to make such a decision and already having a public platform at that time and doing it from a place of knowing that it would displease people, but it would put me at ease. I am so proud of myself, period. And isn't that what it's about? If you can love you, then then life becomes easy. I was a I was a dating coach for years. I used to say that stupid line, like, if you can't love you, how can anybody else love you? And it's just such a dumb thing to say to people that are trying to date. But the truth of it is, is what does love mean, right? Love means being honest. If you look at the words love and honesty, they, they mirror each other in so many ways. But if you can't be honest with you, then you can't be loved by anybody, right? Which means you don't get to kick your own ass because you're not all bad. Honesty cuts both ways. Sometimes it means you have to say the hard things, but sometimes it means you have to say the real things. Real things are very often positive. Yeah. Right. It's not about putting a positive shine on everything and, and everyone. It's about being honest. And if you're being honest with yourself, then you're probably more good than you are bad. And yeah. that's one of the things that people pleasers struggle with the most is that narrative of like, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. And I've spent, I spent 35 years of my life feeling like that. And I will not let people feel like that if I can, if I can avoid it. Yeah. One of the things I heard you say too, before it was in regards to being able to voice whatever your boundary is or, or live that thing out is that everyone who pushes up against that is not necessarily toxic or narcissistic because we hear that being thrown around such a so much like oh they didn't honor my boundary they're toxic can you speak to that cuz you talked about people being able to say the hard things or have those conversations and we think that having the conversation must be easier must go in our favor or the other or something's wrong with the other person can you speak to that yeah i think <laughs> we live in a really entitled society that is very, very narcissistic and in its own right. But again, when you say like that person's a narcissist, if everyone in your life is a narcissist, at some point, you have to ask the question, maybe is it me? And if your boundaries sound like rule books, if you're not any good at boundaries and they always sound like rules in the beginning, like mom, don't feed the baby after two. That's one of my boundaries. No, that's not a boundary. That's a rule. <laughs> when you have those kinds of conversations and people bump up against them. I mean, just in that example, don't smoke cigarettes in front of me. My dad used to do that and I don't like it. Leave them. <laughs> because essentially that's making your trigger a boundary. Right. You're making me do something for you rather than you taking action on what I'm doing. The boundary is you taking action on what I do. So if I smoke cigarettes and you don't like it, 
you have the option to leave. I don't smoke anymore, but that's just a great example. But what do people do? They sit there and complain and say, you're not honoring my boundary because you're still smoking. But instead of taking responsibility for what I can do, I'm trying to control what you're doing. Right. Boundaries are personal responsibility. Boy, does that make people uncomfortable. People hate my personal responsibility posts. I mean, they go viral every time, but they hate them, right? Because I'm poking them right in the chest and saying, you're not special. But a boundary in that situation. So an example of a good boundary is like, I'm allowed to say no. Okay. So somebody says, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? I'm like, no. Well, how come? Okay. Does that mean they're a narcissist? No, it means that I that they're asking for an explanation. And I'm and I'm free to say I don't I choose not to explain myself. My no means no, and that is what it is, right? But somebody bumping up against your boundary more than one time, like did you expect that they were just gonna learn this overnight? You thought they were gonna honor everything about it, that you changed overnight with no learning because you're so special and your boundaries are so valuable that everyone should just know how to do that. Who's the narcissist, really? So I do believe in giving people the dignity of their own process. I think a lot of times we learn something new, right? And then we want everyone else to jump on board. But we learned it when we when we came into our awakening. We learned it at whatever time was right for us. And now we want to force that to be someone else's time as well. But there's something to be said for when it does happen over and over and over again. And you've articulated something. So when is enough enough? I think that's individual, but I think that there's also another way to do it. It seems to me that, and I've seen it a lot, somebody bumps up against your boundaries, let's say four or five times, and it's getting to an annoying place. Well, then you need a little bit more pushback, but the pushback needs to be equal to the resolve, right? So you push back real hard in the hardest pushback of all. And it's like, they bumped up against my boundaries. So now I'm just going to go no contact right? That's the all or nothing, black or white, emotionally unstable thing to do. But I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go no contact, right? Uh huh. So they do that. And then they say, well, I don't know why anybody, I don't know why I don't have any friends anymore. Well, you, you started going no contact with everybody who made you upset. What I always tell people is when somebody bumps up against your boundaries, you need to be prepared to defend your position. You need to be prepared to, to hold the line. But you also don't have to like shoot them in the face. You can just turn the volume down on the friendship a little bit. Mm, You don't have to burn a bridge. Right. So if you think of your friends and your family as having dials rather than being all or nothing, right? So your mom's kind of loud in your life, i.e. she spends a lot of time with you. Well, maybe you turn that volume down. And then the eventuality is she'll say, hey, how come we don't spend as much time together? Well, mom, I had asked you to you know, I had told you about how I was feeling in this particular situation. It kept being a thing that you were stepping over. I didn't want to explain it anymore. So I was kind of allowing you some time to process. That's good. Right. You're not punishing anybody. That's not what this is about. It's about, I'm turning the volume down to protect my peace. I hate it when I say that, by the way, I hate that word or that phrase, protect my peace. I think that's the new buzzword for, I'm not going to take responsibility, but really, in many regard, yeah. Like peace protection. What, do you, what does that mean? If you have to say you're protecting your peace, you're not at peace. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs> well, what if it's not something you have to articulate, but it's the way that you navigate? Then you are peaceful. 
I think that things get worn out in the effort to create, you know, this bevy of content, which we're a part of. Right. And so you get sucked in (laughs) to these terms. But really, in my actual life, I don't walk around saying I'm protecting my peace. I'm protecting my peace. I think it's a way of being. So my actions dictate that I prioritize peace. Right. The way I set my life up dictates that I prioritize peace. But I think the ick is saying it, like walking around having to say it all the time is the thing that is like, don't don't talk about it. Just be about it. Right. Marcus Aurelius said that. Stop talking about growing and start growing. Yeah. Let's just do the thing. Right. Uh, Let's just do the thing rather than keep talking about the thing. It's much easier. (laughs) It's much easier on everybody. I love this field a lot, but the amount of. 22 year old life coaches that are telling me to protect my peace is getting to be absurd. (laughs) What is in your algorithms, Nick? (laughs) I know too often now with words, we've gotten very careless about what we say as a society. Labeling everybody a narcissist is narcissistic. And the fact that, you know, I, I had an argument online with my personal account the other day where I had asserted that someone's opinion was that they had a blind spot and they attempted to turn around and say, I said a thing that is in writing that I didn't say that thing. It was in writing. It was a perception of theirs um, and an opinion that they had. And that, and like they said, I offended them. And I said, no, you chose offense. There's a difference. What I said was factually accurate. You being offended doesn't change the narrative. So I'm entitled to my opinion is one of my Bill of Rights. And if you're going to say dumb (laughs) I'm going to be displeasing. (laughs) And and all I saw is just this person has all this hate. And it's one of these, it's where I got the activism ideas. Like, okay, well, your activism is usually you being mad about a new subject every week. I'm not concerned with everyone being comfortable. Yeah. Something that I've been really discovering for myself these last few years is that the same, I I love that you say you chose offense. I've been saying that clarity is clearly offensive to people. Like giving someone a clear answer because it doesn't align with what they expected from you or what they wanted you to say or whatever it is. All of a sudden people are like, you know, this is the... Take the breath and hands on the on the pearls and all these things. People can't believe, especially I think for a woman. And I know you're a coach. Do you see any differences in how women um go about setting their personal bill of rights or being able to enforce their boundaries or take responsibility? Are there any differences between your male and female clients? I would say that well, first the process is the same. But like every time, like process is always the same. We need to define all the rules you live by, pick the ones you like, get rid of the ones you don't, and get rid of any ones that are contradictory. Like mine used to be, I'm allowed to spend money on myself, but I also have to watch everything I spend. So I can never have any fun just for fun's sake. Right. Right. Those two contradict each other, but just an example. But in terms of what men and women do differently. So I think that women tend to believe they'll be in more danger when they set their boundaries internally, which is again, when they, when you set your boundaries internally, nobody else has to ever know. Like I don't run around with a list of boundaries that I give to people like here are my boundaries. Nobody knows I have the thing in my pocket. It's my reminder. So there's that, but 
men have a tendency to believe that they will be alone or they will be disrespected. What men don't know is that being nice and boundaryless has caused them to appear placative and unattractive to women because they're not assertive and they're not strong. And what women tend to experience is they have bad people in their life, specifically bad men who see them as weak and people they can abuse. So the fears are very much the same and they're very real. What happens when you become a boundaried woman is the people that would be abusive to you don't, they don't show up in your frame anymore. And will they show up? Sure. That will always be a thing. Like you, one or two may slip by the radar, but you'll notice the, it's like, I, I see it online again all the time. It's like the top 10 red flags. There is no such thing. A red flag to you may not be a red flag to me. There's only behaviors you'll tolerate and behaviors you won't tolerate, i.e. your boundaries. Can I tell you, this is how I knew I was free to date, <laughs> like post-divorce. I knew I was free to date because I had, through you know, the process, become a more boundaried woman. I, I wouldn't call it such, but I had become a more boundaried woman. And so in dating, there was one guy in particular that I was dating early 2023. And by then, I was very aware of the personal bill of rights, things that I would tolerate and things that I just wouldn't. And so even for the look of, oh, you're so cute together. You take beautiful pictures. Oh, this guy has all these things. He's rich. He's tall. He has access to this. He's fit. He's blah, blah, blah. People love him. He's on all these stages. He's. But I was like, but in my, to use your terms, my personal bill of rights, I will not be talked to in this way. I will not be treated in this way. Nothing for me to really say to him. I, what I told him was, Jan Levanzant says, you don't get to tell people how to love you. You get to see how they love and decide if you want to participate. And I just knew for my, I just don't want to participate. This is not about, I need to fix you. And I want you, if you just understood all the things. No, it's just like, oh no, this, I just don't want to participate in this. This is not the type of love that I'm interested in. Thank you. Toodaloo. Right. And it was just right. easy breezy. Life doesn't look like this for me. And life doesn't look like this for me. And I was in and out. I see that a lot in addiction with codependent relationships is very interesting. So I do work some in the addiction field still, I, mostly for free and for fun. I, it's not something I offer as a coaching package. But so often we get the fixers, right? The enablers that are like, well, I can take care of it. I can fix it. A friend of mine is going through something with this right now where one of our mutual friends has become extremely alcoholic. Like it's out of control. And he finally got on the phone with him the other day and in a very loving way said, look, man, I'm not walking down this road with you. This is your road and you're going to choose to travel it. But unless you go down a different road, I won't, I, I won't walk with you now. And that's the same conversation you had at a very early stage with this, you know, with this guy is like, I, Hey, that's a good road for you. Like, that sounds like a fun game for you. That's not a game I want to play. Yeah. Speaker's a good game. Right? <laughs> Playboy is a good game. Narcissist is a good game. It's just not a game I play. Just not a game I play. Oh, that's so good, Nick. This week's episode is brought to you by the Institute for Redefining Wealth, where every month we help you redefine wealth using our unique framework for financial wellness. We'll be your accountability partner, providing clear success paths, resources, and motivation to keep you on track as you work toward your professional and financial goals. And for a limited time, you can still start your first month at 
$20.24 as a founding member. For more details, visit redefiningwealth.institute. That's redefiningwealth.institute. Nick, well, I am so grateful to you for all of the stuff that you put out there. Wonderful reminders. Like I said, I'm always sharing your stuff with the ladies in my community, in particular in the mastermind. You have something called the Boundaries Bootcamp. I do. The Boundary Bootcamp is launching again in March. So it, it actually, this would be perfect timing. And I don't know the price point on that. It's going up every time I do it. But that is an eight-week course um, that I facilitate. I have two Q&As that are built in there. It is video, tons and tons and tons of content, lots of cool activities that you do. So one of the things that I don't do in my courses is I make them experiential. I'm not going to have you just write down your feelings. We're actually going to get out and do some work in public. And the exercises are absurd and they're ridiculous and they're a lot of fun. But by the end of that, you actually will have built a bill of rights for yourself which is a living document that you can update every year by just going right back through the process. And, you know, they'll set a timer on their phone. Like we put a reminder, today is the day I do my shoulds. Today is the day I do this thing. And if you, if you do that and you make it a practice, then you become boundaried very quickly, right? Because it's not about affirmations. It's about taking control of who you are. So there's that. And then I'm also launching my own mastermind, which is going to be, I'm sure you can imagine, it's going to be a very high ticket offer, but that will be a three-day course in person, live with me. I'm only taking 15 people. I'll have 15 men and 15 women, and it will be broken into separate cohorts because I feel like men and women need to learn boundaries by themselves. And then after that, there will be eight weeks of accountability coaching that's done as a group because one of the things we know about the personal growth world is that it becomes an addiction for people. And the reason it becomes an addiction is nobody's holding you accountable. So that eight weeks is about that final component. So you never have to join another group like that again. That's so good. Just making sure you do the things instead of continuing to talk about them. Right. It can't just be about the entertainment and just gathering more information. It has to really be about integration and transformation. Like, what are you going to do to actually change your life? And ultimately, I think that's on us as individuals as well. You know, like you talked about earlier, to take full responsibility and actually do the things. I think a lot of us get caught up in gathering the information or we get excited to buy the book, but then we don't read it and or we don't apply what we read or we sign up for the course and then we don't follow through with the exercises. We don't commit to the, you know, the accountability portion. And then we're like, oh, that thing didn't work. Well, you also didn't work it. But it does tap into the fact that most people don't do the things. No, I mean, I spent 20 years of my life reading personal growth material and not growing. So, I mean, I probably spent more than that. But, you know, I was 38 when I really basically stopped reading personal growth and started doing personal growth. That's the difference. Like I read a lot less personal growth books these days, but I do a lot more of with the ones I read. So I'm more of a qualitative action versus quantitative reading. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a new client who was like, man, these, these changes feel like I should, you know, really step into these slow. And I'm like, yeah, man, like you asked me to redesign your life. <laughs> it's 1% change every day. Like that's it. Like d- right now we're in the noticing phase. That's all we're doing is noticing. Then we get into design and action. So we take design and we act and we, and we qualitative and do the thing, right? Make some action. And then once we have the action, then we test and we tweak and we do that over and over and over again until we've created a solution to that problem that lines up with you. It's not about, I read the secret 
and I sat and manifested myself a motorcycle. Like, it's insane. <laughs> like, I got a Ferrari because I thought about it. No. <laughs> Nobody's ever got a Ferrari because they thought about it. Either somebody before them or themselves did the work. Yeah. It's the same. We do awakening and then redefining. So now that you've awakened to what doesn't work, you need to define or redefine for yourself what you desire and then actualizing. How do we walk that out? So we test and tweet, test and tweet. Clarity comes in the doing. We won't know until you try it. The sitting on the silence of, I don't know if it's going to work for me. You're not special. At least try, (laughs) at least try. And then we go from there. So we're definitely in the same boat. I used to think the prize was in being able to say that I read 20 books a year or something like that. And now I'm like, I sit with like two or three really great books that I need in this season. And I take my time and implement the things that I need to implement for me. But it's not a quantitative thing for me anymore. Definitely not. There are three books I love that I read every single year. So the first one is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I just love it. It's not a great book anymore. (laughs) It's really not. It's just something that I enjoy. But I read it and I listen to it because the audio is like an old man. Like it's How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I could never. (laughs) It's hilarious. I mean, you can tell it's like a 75-year-old white guy sitting on a porch with a glass of scotch reading this book. The second one is No More Mr. Nice Guy. I actually recommend that book for anybody in the people-pleasing world. So that one's really fascinating for me. And I I do it. And I mean, I do it because it's got exercise in it. I do it every year. And then I also read Psycho-Cybernetics, which is probably the cornerstone text of all things personal growth. It was written by Maxwell Maltz, a former plastic surgeon. And I, I highly recommend that book. Speaking of books, one more plug for myself. Mine will be coming out in 25. Congratulations. Thank you. I've got a publishing agent and the whole thing. So it's like actually going to happen. And I've hired a collaborative team and and all that's happening. So we should have, we hope to have an offer on that book first of 2024, like January, February, and then we'll go into kind of full-blown writing mode, March through July. And then March through July, we will do that. And then we go to print and publishing and editing. So congratulations. That's a journey. We don't know the name of the book yet. It's we're playing with titles, but it'll be something special and, and kind of new. I know it's going to be dope. Well, what I do know already is that it's going to get straight to the heart of the matter and be chock full of like actionable things because you're no BS. So I love that. And there's a book on Blinkist that I was reading and I, gosh, the name escapes me right now, but it talks about how in this day and age, people don't need three, four, 500 page books. It's like, get to what the thing is. And if you really want to capture their attention and truly help people, just get to the thing and like help people do it instead of, and I don't know, I just see you as that type of no BS person like this. There's no need to make this 400 pages. Let's get to the stuff. So folks will actually read it and apply it. So I love that. Well, when you have the book, you got to come back. Oh, I will. No doubt. I actually listed you as somebody that would possibly promote that. For oh, me, so, yeah. I'm um, in. The proposal. I, mean, I did that ahead of time, by the way. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I know that I have to let you go. We're getting to the hour. I want to ask you the rapid wisdom questions that we ask on the podcast. So tell us the first thing that comes to mind. First one is, how do you define success? Kindness. How do you define wealth in three words or less? Genuine, joyful action. I love that. What's one book that has redefined how you see wealth? 
the subtle art of not giving a like it. <laughs> and the last one, you're going to fill in the blank. My name is, and for me, the truth about wealth is. My name is Nick Pollard. For me, the truth about wealth is that it only matters if it surrounds everything. Mm. Yeah, that's essentially what we talk about here. I love it. Nick, thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I hope it was, uh, hope my language wasn't too wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was real. And that's what we love. So I appreciate that so much. You guys, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Make sure you follow Nick online. If you're not already, he's at thepeopledispleaser.com. Check out the Boundaries Bootcamp. It will be back next month. And Nick, you also have a free download. Bulletproof Boundaries. And you can find that actually, uh, my website is nickpollard.com. Go to nickpollard.com, pick up Bulletproof Boundaries, start writing your personal bill of rights, follow Nick at the People Displeaser, and let him know that you found him on the Redefining Wealth podcast. And this is what I truly believe. Sometimes following your purpose is just going to have to be offensive to others. It is not your job to try to stay into some parameters that make other people comfortable Sometimes folks are just annoyed by your clarity. They can be offended by your clarity, but your purpose demands that you get clear about who you are and what you were called to do in this world. So I hope that this episode is a blessing to you and that in following Nick, you will be more boundaried men and women who can really live your life's purpose to the fullest. So thank you for being here. I'm Patrice Washington. You can follow me at Seek Wisdom PCW. We can talk more about your personal bill of rights in the Redefining Wealth app. You can download it on your iOS or Android device. We are going to be talking more about this all month because our theme at Redefining Wealth this month is to stop people pleasing. So come drop your takeaways and what you're working on and any resources that you have found helpful in your own life so we can all grow together. Until next time, I want you to go live your life's purpose, find fulfillment and earn more without ever feeling like you have to chase money. I'll talk to you later. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.